From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemics meant challenges and opportunities in the workplace, especially for restaurants. That's where ghost kitchens come in. This is, I think, a really great launching point to grow a restaurant, and that's what we're excited about. Then a new book argues there's a misperception about who entrepreneurs really are. I started getting a lot of calls from black women who were exiting mainstream corporate America, government jobs, nine to fives, and they were wanting to branch out on their own. Plus a hopeful for one of the Winter Olympics' newest sports, Free Ski Big Air features amazing twists and turns. Sometimes it just all goes by in such a blink and a whirlwind that you don't even really know what's happening until you land it in a way. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado. Thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The pandemic has accelerated a lot of business innovations that were already underway, like the concept of ghost kitchens. They're typically kitchens, unlike brick-and-mortar restaurants, used by chefs who make food exclusively for delivery or pickup. The idea is to minimize the cost and maintenance of a traditional restaurant. I recently visited Chef Ready in central Denver, where the kitchens produce everything from Thai food to pizza to a type of popsicle from Mexico called a paleta. Chef Reddy's 10 kitchens are in an industrial building where the activity revs up in the late morning as lunch hour approaches. Mark Bear's talking while monitoring some peppers and onions sautéing in a pan. And this is the three colors of bell peppers with onions. It's one of my favorite things to cook. It's quick and it makes the place smell absolutely delicious. Bear and his wife Sally own Angry Bear Fajita Bowls. Next to him is an industrial grill he's using to charcoal broil some flank steak. I like to make sure there's a nice sear on the outside of the steak. Really delicious. It's crispy on the outside, juicy, and nice medium on the inside. A few feet away, Sally Bear is cutting up more onions. It's a small space, about 15 by 15 feet, but the couple seems to have mastered how to move without running into each other. This is, I think, a really great launching point to grow a restaurant, and that's what we're excited about. Before this, the Bears thought about a food truck, but decided there were just too many complications and questions. The maintenance, we have where you're gonna go for the day, You know, where to park. And then when it comes to a business, having to do that every day, you know, I really commend those who can pull that off. And so it really felt like what we wanted to deliver in a food truck, we were able to capture here. So that's why we say food truck without wheels. Business for Angry Bear Fajita Bowls is slow so far. The couple just opened a few months ago on Halloween. Mark Bear says they're doing a lot of outreach on social media. Neely Pointer and her husband opened Chef Ready Kitchens this spring. 
They'd been planning the concept for a couple of years. Even before the pandemic, they watched how hard it was to make a restaurant business work. We've had some close friends that have had multiple restaurants. And so through the years, we've seen them, especially a few who, you know, had five different restaurants and locations in the Bay Area. And then, you know, because of rising labor costs, rent costs, they started slowly closing their brick and mortars down one by one by one until they didn't have any. She said the pandemic sped up what was already a move toward ordering out. The dining out experience, even before the pandemic, has has been changing. As we know, restaurants don't make a lot of money. So a lot of these restaurants have been struggling for quite some time anyway. Dozens of Colorado restaurants have shut down since the pandemic started, and the labor shortage has been brutal for owners. Pointer says with winter coming, fewer people are going to be able to dine outside. And with COVID-19 still plaguing communities, she expects the trend toward people ordering in to continue. Pointer says the average rent for one of these kitchens is somewhere between two and $4,000 a month. She says a restaurant costs far more. Not only do you have to have all the front of the house and all the costs with those, but you also, it's all the key money, investment money in the build out of building a brick and mortar, right? And it can cost anywhere from a quarter of a million to $2 million, depending on the type of restaurant you're building. Down the hall from Angry Bear Fajitas, there's a dessert option. Hey, how are you? I'm Andrea. Andrea, nice to meet you. Alejandra, welcome to Localeta. <laughs> Thank you. Proprietor Alejandra Gonzalez is starting to melt chocolate. A couple of weeks ago, she opened Localetas, where she makes a Mexican form of popsicles made out of ice cream called paletas. I make them with only organic ingredients, honoring the traditional flavors of my culture since I am from Mexico. I have pecan, chocolate, vanilla, uh, lime, strawberry, pineapple even, mango. She says paletas, reminder of her childhood. Her dad had ice cream shops in Mexico. Gonzalez's dream is to open an ice cream shop too, but this is a start. Her hope is to make big orders for events, for parties or at schools, or maybe sell her brand at grocery stores. I have a big machine that can make up to 200 paletas per hour, and it's just me really dicing the fruit. I make the pineapple juice, the cucumber juice, and then I dice little pieces of fruit so that they're at the end of the paleta. Gonzalez mixes up the ingredients, then puts them in molds, and the machine freezes them. She's donating 15% of her net revenue toward scholarships for immigrant and refugee college students that are first generation. Right now, she's working to drum up business. This is my second week in business, <laughs> so I am doing all my sales online and through social media, using the delivery apps, Grubhub, Uber Eats, Postmates, all of those. Chef-ready owner Neely Pointer says the tenants get help from experts on how to operate a delivery business and sell products. Those who want to buy food from the various kitchens can either order directly through each tenant's website for pickup, or they can order through third-party delivery groups. Pointer's goal is to one day allow people to buy from each of the different kitchens using one order. What we're trying to develop is essentially a virtual food hall what you'll be able to do on our website is, you know, we're, we will have all of our restaurants on there and, you know, you can have a family of four where everybody, as we all know, disagrees on what they want to eat for dinner. And I'm sure this happens now where they do different orders from different delivery platforms. But what will be nice is somebody wants pizza and somebody wants Thai and somebody wants, you know, dessert and somebody wants 
sandwiches. They'll be able to order various things from all of our different kitchens. They'll prepare it, and then they'll all get packaged together and sent out in one delivery. At this point, eight of the kitchens have been leased. Pointer expects to have tenants in the other two soon. Chef Reddy's one approach to the idea of using kitchens exclusively for delivery or takeout. Paul Allen has a different approach. He's co-founder of Denver-based NextBite. And Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. Great to be here. I want to point out that there are lots of different twists on this idea. Your company, NextBite, uses space within existing restaurants. You call them virtual restaurants. How do they work? That's right. So, you know, this this industry of delivery-only brands has been around for a while. And what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of uh, innovation Um, what you've described so far in the broadcast is what we refer to as the commissary model. And sort of unbeknownst to consumers, uh, literally thousands of these commercial kitchens have popped up all around the globe. And uh, restaurants, large and small, are using them to prepare food that is uh, delivered to homes. Um, Our model is different. Um, we were started by myself and, and uh, my co-founders uh, have, a, have a, a deep restaurant background, and we really built the company to try to help existing brick-and-mortar restaurants survive. So all of the delivery-only brands that we develop uh, are fulfilled by existing restaurants using existing chefs and and equipment in, on on premise, and it enables them to make incremental revenue without increasing costs, uh, and helps them to 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 grow. And your company has its own food concepts. Then it has these different restaurant partners make them along with the other things that they're making, right? That's correct. Yeah, we have eighteen different brands today. Uh, we're working with thousands of. Uh, small and large restaurants across the country. We're also in, in Canada and Mexico. Uh, and uh, we we handle everything from culinary training uh, to supply chain to quality control and marketing uh, for each of those locations. So really, um, all the restaurant has to do is prepare the orders that come through our uh, our printer that we also provide to the restaurants and uh, and make more revenue. And how exactly are these restaurants making money? Um, you're assuming they have uh, extra kitchen time to make these, but how do they make money from it? Sure. Um, so the restaurants are paid uh, by us to prepare orders for our brands. And, uh, and then from uh, that revenue, they, they have to cover their food costs, uh, which is roughly half of the amount that we pay them. So they receive 55% uh, of every uh, order, of the value of every order, and the food costs typically uh, amount to about 20 to 25%. So it's a substantial margin uh, for restaurants that are accustomed to making, you know, less than 10%, often less than 5% profit margin. And just to wrap up, how would you compare this model to, say, uh, what you call the commissary model that we just heard about? Well, 
I think that there's a role for innovation and there's a role for the commissary kitchens. Our concern is we want to maintain neighborhoods. Uh, we think that restaurants are important to the fabric of communities. And so our role is to develop innovative brands that consumers are excited about and enable existing restaurants to make more revenue uh, from, from their existing uh, assets. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Paul Allen owns Denver-based Nextbite, which operates virtual restaurants nationally. Early, earlier, we heard about another concept from the company Chef Ready. It leases ghost or virtual kitchens in Denver. When we come back, who are the new builders? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Running a restaurant was challenging before the pandemic. For the ones that have survived, COVID's made it even trickier. I'm CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland. And I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. We'll bring you a day in the life of a restaurant, from the difficulties of finding servers and broccoli... To the juggling act of running a small business while raising a family. Your table is ready Monday at 9 and 7 on CPR News and KRCC. A new book argues that there's a misperception about who the country's entrepreneurs really are and that that's hindering economic growth. Seth Levine is a partner and co-founder at the Boulder-based venture capital firm Foundry Group. He co-wrote The New Builders. Makisha Booth is founder of Denver-based Sistabiz. It's a business accelerator for black female entrepreneurs. Seth, Makisha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. Seth, what would you say is the mainstream view of who the nation's entrepreneurs are? Now, I think one of the reasons we wrote the book uh, is exactly because of this question, that it turns out that the popular view of an entrepreneur is very different from the reality on the ground, right? I mean, people, if you read the mainstream press, you read the business press, you would think that the vast majority of people that are starting businesses today are white males starting businesses uh, that are tech businesses, likely in Silicon Valley or maybe somewhere on the East Coast, Boston or New York. It turns out that that's not even remotely true. The vast majority of people that are starting businesses today are women and people of color. Uh, and in fact, the fastest growing group of new entrepreneurs are black women. And you know these are trends that are backed up by facts. We cite in the book, we cite a number of studies, the American Express report on women-led businesses, as well as data from the uh, Small Business Administration and some other government sources that clearly show these trends in entrepreneurship. Very different than what you might get if you open up the business section of a newspaper or a, a national magazine and, and read about entrepreneurship. Of course, you can't discount those who have built these behemoths like Amazon and Apple. Absolutely not. And, and you know, I think importantly in the book, we don't argue big business is bad, small business is good. We argue for a balance. And, and really, in the history of the United States, we've always kind of ebbed and flowed with this balance. But if you look at what's happening today in our economy, we've gotten uh, out of balance. And that's really problematic for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is that the vast majority, uh, and in some studies, more than 100% of all new jobs created in the U U.S. come from small business. So it's an important economic engine. It's a, a nearly 50% of employment. Um, it's about 40% of U.S. GDP comes from small businesses, but it's also the economic engine for employment in the U.S., and that's critically important as well. 
When you talk about entrepreneurs, what do you mean exactly, and why do you call them the new builders? One of the things that has been so pernicious in our view of entrepreneurship as a society is that we've narrowed what we mean when we say the word entrepreneur. It used to be, say, 100 years ago, entrepreneur was a broad term for really anyone who was running and, and starting a business. And that might be the, you know, the farrier or the corner merchant. And today we've really narrowed that. And in fact, in the book, we talk about the history of that narrowing, which was really a diplomatic tool. Ronald Reagan in the 80s uh, started describing entrepreneur as tech entrepreneur, and he used it as a diplomatic tool really to contrast capitalism with communism. And he used it very effectively, but the byproduct of the way that he was using the term really uh, narrowed our thinking and the use of the word to just mean technology entrepreneur usually starting a business that was intended to be a fast growth business, a high growth business. We think that that's problematic because it really narrows down the people that think of themselves as entrepreneurs and how we think about entrepreneurs. My co-author and I decided we would come up with a new term, not to reinvent entrepreneur, because we think that entrepreneurs should extend to all of the people that we call new builders. But we wanted to describe this next generation of a business owner, these women, these people of color, these uh, immigrants who are starting businesses And Makisha, let's bring you in here. You work with a lot of female entrepreneurs who are Black. From what you've seen out in the business world, have you witnessed what Seth describes on the ground? That is that today's entrepreneurs are more likely to be women and people of color. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually how SisterBiz got started, because I started getting a lot of calls from Black women who were exiting mainstream corporate America, government jobs, nine to fives, and they were wanting to branch out um, on their own and become entrepreneurs and small business owners. But there was no support system and and no community and, and few resources that they could leverage to be successful. And Makisha, how did you yourself get started in the entrepreneurial world? Oh, goodness. Well, this latest round here, Sistabiz, was I had the same story as the people I work with. And so I left a government agency job and was burned out and experienced workplace trauma and wanted to work for myself and build my own legacy. But my work in small business goes back to when I was... 19, and I worked for the U.S. Small Business Administration. I ran a small day spa in Cherry Creek, um, north in Colorado for some time, and then in the Golden Triangle. And I've been a small business owner and an entrepreneur at heart for the past 25 years. What's your sense of why so many Black women are starting businesses? You mentioned burnout from other jobs. Um, Yeah, so there's a few reasons why I think Black women are starting, are the fastest growing group of women in business. And there's some research around this in um, a couple of reports where Black women have been interviewed and reported that they're exiting corporate America, mainstream institutions, and record numbers due to everything from workplace trauma, racial trauma, and equitable pay and treatment. And so entrepreneurship is a way for them to make ends meet and for them to escape that experience. And entrepreneurship is where they're running to. But when they get here, they need support, they need resources, they need community. You've mentioned workplace trauma a few times, and I just want you to describe what you mean more specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, for Black women, often it means experiencing inequitable pay and treatment, experiencing microaggressions, microassaults, microinsults on a daily basis, and not having access to the same opportunities in the workplace as their white counterparts. 
And Seth, one of the entrepreneurs you profile is a woman who started a cake shop in Lawrence, Massachusetts. What's her story? Yes, this is the story of Denaris Mazzara. And in the book, we tell the stories of a number of different new builders and put them in a larger context. And Denaris's story, which is really kind of the highlighted story throughout the book, is really incredible. It just shows the perseverance and tenacity of new builders. Denaris is an immigrant. She's from uh, the Dominican Republic. She was working at a Samsung factory in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a a town uh, maybe 30 minutes outside of Boston. And she was was struggling. And her her mother brought over uh, $37 in food stamps to help her out. She had a child and she was needing to put food on the table. And Denaris, who believes in God, had a, sort of a vision. Uh, she was sitting on her sofa, sort of ready to go to work. And, and she was essentially had this vision of, I should go and, and make flan, which was funny and, and particularly because she didn't know how to make flan. But she decided that's what she would spend the, the $37 on. So she went and bought uh, the ingredients to make flan with these food stamps and made flan. The first batch actually was ruined. <laughs> and she was wondering, why was I told to do this? Uh, but the second batch came out well, and she took it to the break room at Samsung and sold them off the break table for $5 a piece. She did this repeatedly, and after a month, had turned $37 into $500 and realized that maybe there was something more here. It's a longer story, and I won't recount the whole thing, but through a series of fortunate circumstances, she ended up uh, becoming connected to a group called Entrepreneurship for All that was started in Boston. They actually We, we operate here in Colorado as well, out of Longmont. But uh, that group helped her operationalize her business, buy a building, open up a a Main Street bakery. And she now employs uh, over a dozen women in Lawrence and has a very successful small business. The foreword of the book is by Tyra Banks. She's a model and actress. Uh, She's also a female business owner and a person of color. Talk about her business and her struggles getting started. Tyra wrote this foreword really about her own experiences as a Black woman, a a Black businesswoman. And even with her fame and with resources, she struggled in ways that she felt like her white counterparts did not. And so she wrote a a foreword about that experience, and it's incredibly powerful. She describes, you know, holding on to fierce, what she calls fierce power, and it really comes through in her writing. And I believe the business she started was an ice cream business. Is that right? She, so Tyra started a number of different businesses, but the one she's working on right now is called Smize Cream, which is an ice cream business. Makisha, does Banks' experience fit in with the unique challenges you see for Black women starting businesses? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that it's very common for us to have a shorter runway and to have less investors want to take a chance on us to have less social capital and circles where we can access the resources for the money. And also when we are working on businesses in which our market is our own community to have investors that understand our models and our business concepts and our ideas less. And so it's harder to explain what you're trying to do because there's a level of cultural competence that often is needed to understand some of our concepts because we know how to serve our communities. Not all of us have markets that are specifically targeting the Black community or our own communities, but in the cases that we do, we experience like just that lack of understanding um, on the part of those who have the resources to help us build. 
And can you give me an example of perhaps one of the successful entrepreneurs that you've worked with and what propelled them to success? Sure. So um, one of my clients is a social media agency, but before she opened her agency, she was working in customer service, um, a low paying job. And she met with me to coach to see how she could leave her job where she wasn't happy and launch her social media agency. And when I shared with her and kind of walked her through where I felt her business could be and and how long it would take, she almost didn't believe me. And I kind of quoted her a number of like, I think 205K for her first year. And she was like, yeah, right. And so she was super scared. She went back to work. We have a big annual retreat that we do to help Black women build their strategic plans for the year. It's actually just wrapped up this weekend. Well, last year when it was happening, she told her boss that she wanted to take a few days off to go to the event. And her boss said no. And so she quit her job. And she came to the event and she's like, Makisha, I quit my job. I'm going to do what we said, what she said I could do. And I was like, whoa, whoa, everybody calm down. I didn't say quit your job yet. But she was serious. She was ready. And she really decided to take the leap. That was a year ago. She has exceeded the 205K that she made this year in her social media agency. But she's also just transformed as an entrepreneur and an individual and, and a woman and, and found more power and more fierceness and more confidence on her journey. And so she was here this year sharing with 50 other women how they can do it, too, because she did it last year. How has the pandemic affected the folks starting businesses that you've worked with? Yeah. So the pandemic has had mixed results. And the fact that it coincided with George Floyd's death and it's just been a huge, huge um, couple of years of change and, and trauma for our community. But we also have seen the nation impacted by this and, and kind of trying to figure out how to support the Black community and Black businesses more. And so those initiatives have helped our business owners. But we've seen a lot of our businesses close. So 40% of Black businesses were under threat of closure right at the beginning of of the pandemic. And we also know that we weren't able to access the relief and recovery funds at the same rate as some of our white counterparts and didn't have the paperwork, the back office support to access those funds. A lot of the eligibility criteria for grants that were being given out and for government funding, they really weren't very culturally responsive in taking into consideration the standing of Black businesses prior to the pandemic, because it was a pandemic for America, but we were already in a pandemic as a Black business community. A lot of what our white businesses started to experience during the pandemic, losing staff, not having employees, being under threat of closure, we were experiencing that already. So then we just went a little lower. And so the pandemic was really harsh on the community, but we did see a lot of efforts and a lot of advocacy to try to address that. And I want to ask both of you this in terms of raising capital. How do you improve the ability for some of these folks starting new businesses to raise capital? So it may surprise people, but the median amount of money raised by a Black female founder in 2018 was zero. We are not doing a good job of connecting capital with new builders. And it's one of the reasons that entrepreneurship in the United States broadly speaking, is actually struggling. If you look at the 40-year trend, in particular the last 20 years, the number of net new businesses started in the United States has been falling and falling precipitously. Uh, at the same time, the average age of a business has been increasing. We're not creating new businesses at the rate 
that we used to, to create them. And we're not creating new businesses at the rate which we need to in order to sustain that economic engine, that new business growth, that new job growth that comes from these businesses. And we believe the real challenge here, the main challenge is that we're not doing a good job of connecting capital with people starting businesses. It may surprise listeners to hear that only about 1% of companies in the United States take money from venture capital. Only about 17% of businesses apply and receive uh, bank financing. So over 80% of companies, of businesses that are founded have to do so with their own resources. So they're they're taking out home equity lines. They're asking friends and family for money. And first of all, we need to narrow that number, right? We need to find ways to creatively finance, whether that's bank financing or some of these new forms of financing that are, are more kind of revenue-based. We call them revenue-based investing or profit-based investing. But we need to do a better job of of funding those businesses, of connecting sources of capital with people that are starting businesses, and with finding more and new creative ways for new builders to to fund their companies. We cannot rely on food stamps (laughs) and other small sources of capital to fund these businesses. And I think one of the things to consider is that, that when you give someone a small amount of money, you're forcing them to think small, right? When you give them access to a greater amount of capital. In the case of new builders, we might only be talking about tens of thousands of dollars, You know, not necessarily the multi-millions of dollars that businesses that are creating technology companies that are intending to scale and you know spend massively on marketing, although some of these businesses started by new builders do look like that. But we need fun- to find new and creative ways to get new builders that kind of financing. And Makisha, how would you say you improve the ability of people starting new businesses to get capital? So we, a lot of our work is about helping them to prepare to access capital through loan readiness, helping them with their business pitches and plans. Um, At the start of our retreat this weekend, everybody came in and got a check, a play check for a million or 10 million or more dollars. And they started the weekend by thinking about what would it look like to scale my idea and my business and have a business that is running and I'm not in it on a day-to-day basis because right now over 95% of our entrepreneurs are solopreneurs. And so we help them envision a business that, a growth plan for their business um, and help them to get their back office support in order and all the things they need to be scale ready and loan ready. And how do you view investing in these small businesses when it comes to risk compared to, say, the risk of investing in a larger business? Well, I think one of the things that people don't understand is what the risk profile of some of these small businesses look like. Now, it's true that it's hard to get a small business, really any business, off the ground. And so there's a certain amount of risk involved in these investments. But that said, I think that there's maybe less risk than people realize. And I hope perhaps that the view of this is changing. Certainly, there are platforms now that are available for people who invest in Main Street businesses, right? They look like crowdfunding. Sometimes there's equity funding involved. And more and more people are making uh, maybe even small investments, $100, $500 at a time, into these uh, small Main Street businesses. But I guess I would kind of turn the question back. I mean, there's a massive risk to us as an economy to not invest in these businesses. And so whether that investment comes from fixing some of the challenges in the banking system, whether that comes from individuals deciding to invest, whether that comes from government grants or other forms of public financing, we can't afford to not invest in these businesses. It's too critical to the future of our economy. 
And you've said the definition of entrepreneurship has been overtaken by Silicon Valley in a way that's really dangerous. You say our obsession with size and scale has been toxic. How do you see it affecting sort of the future of small business and economic development? I think we need to take back the word entrepreneur. It was striking to me, given how often we use that term in my day job, right, and the types of businesses that I work with as a venture capitalist, it was striking to me that many new builders said to us very directly, oh, I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. We often deride businesses that are Main Street businesses as lifestyle businesses. By doing so, we're taking away some of their power. We're suggesting somehow that they've made a trade-off that they should be thinking bigger. They should have this focus on growth. There's lots of businesses and there are lots of people that want to create a life around a passion of theirs that are very happy to run a single location business. And that really is the backbone of our community. And I think that that's something that we sort of miss in this conversation is how important these businesses are, whether they're on Main Street or or in an office park, to their local communities, just how much they gave back to their communities and how much they relied on their communities for support. I completely agree with what Seth is saying. And I think the hyper-focus on the quote-unquote unicorn is dangerous and it's irresponsible and it doesn't take into consideration the entire ecosystem of economic development in the country for so many reasons. One being you have a bunch of big businesses and that's all we have left. And you know what they say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Seth was saying so many of our businesses are small businesses. So you take the small 2% and hyper-focus all investments in that space, then what are we doing with the 98%? It's just an irresponsible approach to the economic ecosystem. And so I absolutely agree that that hyper-focus needs to change. We need to find more balance and we need to find ways to bring together the new builders so that the new builders can create a co-op system where we're able to compete with larger business. In many ways, this is an assessment of the new builders and some of the successes they've had. But in other ways, it's a sober assessment of the ability of people of color to start businesses. And Makisha, I wonder if you have hope for the next decade and what's going to happen and what changes are going to come. I absolutely have hope. I have hope because I work with new builders every day and they inspire me. And with books like The New Builder coming out, where we're starting to recognize the importance of valuing every kind of entrepreneur and and the diversity of the types of businesses that exist in our country. And I also think that, you know, um, there's going to come a time where we have to recognize that and the ecosystem is going to evolve in a way that it's just not possible to continue on with the way that we're going. And and I think that... um, that's why at least Sister Biz and all the other accelerators out there that are like Sister Biz are doing the work we do so that we can help our, our new builders find their voice and take their place in the economy. Makisha Booth, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Seth Levine, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Seth Levine is a partner and co-founder at the Boulder-based venture capital firm Foundry Group. Makisha Booth is founder of Denver-based Sistabiz. When we come back, an Olympic hopeful in the Winter Games' newest sport. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If it's true that all you really need to know in life you learned in kindergarten, what happens when you miss kindergarten because of a pandemic? 
I'm Jenny Brendine, education reporter at CPR News. Many kids who are not in a formal classroom with other students for the past year and a half struggle with listening and processing. What letters do they know? What sounds do they know? Are they ready for building words? Kids and teachers getting back on track. Read and listen to the story at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. When the Winter Olympics begin in February, there will be seven new events. That includes free ski big air. And hoping to make the men's team is Alex Hall. The 23-year-old from Park City, Utah, originally from Zurich, Switzerland, also spent time in Fairbanks, Alaska. And here he is at Steamboat doing Alex Hall kind of things. That was enormous. Hall placed second last weekend in the Steamboat Big Air Free Ski Finals. It's a World Cup event. It's also a qualifier for the U.S. Olympic team. Hall spoke with CPR's Matt Bloom. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. First off, congratulations for this weekend. How are you feeling right now? Oh, I'm, I'm super stoked. Uh, we had an amazing weekend. The weather was absolutely perfect, and uh, we got to hit an amazing jump. So I'm, I'm just hyped to walk out of there with some, some new tricks, and, uh, and landing on second place was like the cherry on top. So overall, just in a, in a great mood right now. Can you describe what free ski big air is for folks who don't know? Yeah, so free ski big air is pretty much um, one big jump on skis. You try and do your best kind of two tricks, two out of, uh, you get three tries to land two different tricks and they have to be different directions. So um, for me personally, I ended up doing one where I went forward off the jump and one where I went backwards off the jump. And then you pretty much try and do your hardest tricks that you know how to do on a jump on skis, whether that's the amount of spins or certain grabs you do and how you grab your ski or the certain type of flips you do. It all kind of depends on the person and um, and what you want to do. And yeah, everyone kind of has their own take on it. So that's super fun. But yeah, big air is pretty much just one one big trick on a jump. And it's kind of showing the judges everything you got. I want to talk through uh, one of the tricks that earned you second place at qualifiers in Steamboat Springs. Can we watch through that real quick? Yeah, for sure. So this is audio of your second run, I believe, from finals in Steamboat. Absolute clutch skier. You can put him at the bottom of a list with one run to go. Odds on, he's going to pop something that's going to put him in the top three. I mean, you said that earlier today, and it is it is what you got to watch out for. Alex is competitive, and he's here to throw down. Wrapping oh. up the 1980. Alex, can you describe like what's going on there for, for folks goodness. who can't see? Alex Hall. Yeah, what? for sure. Um, I don't really know. It was kind of a whole whirlwind there. Um, I hadn't actually never done that that trick on snow before so it was kind of um it was new for me i just kind of went for it i knew that i had to try that new trick where usually i do a 1620 i added an extra 360 so i did a 1980 i guess it sounds crazy to say but um I, yeah i did a 1980 and um i pretty much knew that if i did the easier version of that trick that i had done before i wouldn't be able to get on the podium. So I just ended up going for the the 1980, which I had never done before. And um, so I just kind of dropped in and didn't try to not overthink it. Cause sometimes with tricks that are that complex, it's, it's not really, it doesn't really work to try and go through it in your head. Cause it's so much spinning and it's so hard to think about that. 
it's better to just kind of go out and uh, and try it and you know let your body do what it needs to do it was amazing to watch it all happen so quickly and it kind of goes by in a flash so you're like wait what did he just do up there and so it's in 1980 what does that mean is that the number of spins the 1980 means the number of spins but in um, freestyle skiing we combine the number of flips and the number of spins into the total kind of uh, spin name for the trick so the actually the more specific name for the trick is called a double cork 1980 which means there's two backflips and then I don't I don't even know how to add it all up because I've never spun that it's two backflips and three and a half spinning um, rotations and if you add that all together that makes it a 1980 so it's called a yeah double cork 1980 which and a cork is a mix between a backflip and a just a normal sideways spin and you mix them together and kind of makes it like a, a mixed spin between a a sideways rotation and a backwards rotation and we call that a cork and you're also adding what i understand is like your signature like a grab onto the ski can you explain what that is yeah yeah so with this trick i did this grab that i kind of started and it's i personally don't call it a buick grab but it's kind of caught on that a lot of people call it a buick grab i never named it that um but that's just what people call it because it's a simpler way to call what I actually call a lead stale with a seatbelt grab. And it's like two grabs combined, but that's kind of a mouthful. So people call it a Buick grab. And yeah, that's a huge part of, of our sport with slope style, half pipe and big air skiing is grabbing your skis. And it generally just makes tricks look better. So, um, but there's a variety of different grabs. There's grabs on the back of your skis, on the front of your skis or right under kind of your feet on the skis. And as long as you, I mean, Pretty much with our sport, if you do a trick and you don't do a good grab or you don't grab the trick well, so throughout the duration of the trick, you're not grabbing for very long or you miss your grab, you generally get docked a lot of points, so you can't score very well. So grabbing is a huge part of our sport and just um, making sure that you grab your trick for a long time in the air just because it makes it look better. And our sport's a lot about style and creativity and that's what's so awesome about grabbing because there's so many different varieties of grabs is the grab i do and then everyone else can do different grabs and people could also try my grab but there's just so many different ways to grab your skis and you can cross them up or you can stagger them and so there's just a, a huge variety there which which just adds to the overall creativity of freestyle skiing how did you get started doing big air I didn't necessarily start specifically in big air, but I've been skiing my whole life since I was one or two years old. And then when I was um, 11 or 12, I started getting into freestyle skiing. So I was just skiing around with my friends and doing little flips off jumps that we built ourselves kind of. And uh, yeah, just skiing around with a group of friends that kind of wanted to start freestyle skiing too. And we saw some videos online of people doing freestyle skiing. So that kind of drew us in. And also I got to see some old home movies of my dad from when he was about my age of maybe late teens, early twenties of him and his friends kind of doing some old school hot dogging and stuff back in uh, the 1970s. So what is hot dogging? Hot dogging is what we do nowadays, but the old school version of it where they used to just do a bunch of jumps on skis and like, flips but it was a lot more um it was a lot more free and it wasn't necessarily a sport or anything it's just a way of skiing and it's just kind of that's a term people kind of use to talk about that type of skiing from that era so 
yeah, he used to do that. And there was a bunch of videos that I saw from that when I was young and it looked like a really fun time. So that kind of inspired me to try and go do that with my friends as well. What does it feel like when you're up there, like launching off of the ramp and actually doing the trick in midair? It all depends on the tricks. I mean, we have so many different tricks. Um, for these tricks specifically that I did this weekend, they're kind of like my, they're definitely my my hardest tricks. And they also involved a lot of spinning. So sometimes it just all goes by in such a blink and a whirlwind that you don't even really know what's happening. But you're you know, your body is doing the right thing because you've done done it so many times. You've done something similar so many times. So you don't even really know what's happening until you land it in a way. But I don't know. The, the feelings, I think the one thing that I've kind of drawn parallels to is cliff jumping where people jump off stuff into water. And there you can, you know, if you jump off a 60-foot diving platform or a cliff, you kind of have the same weightless feeling and air kind of airtime is what we call it with then being able to land and not hurt yourself, which I feel like is pretty rare for, for what humans do to find a way to catch that much air and land safely without too much impact. So it's a pretty unique feeling. Moving on to talking about the Olympics coming up, seeing big air recognized in the Olympics as someone who is so passionate about the sport, does that mean anything to you? And what do you take away from it being added to the roster of events? Yeah, it definitely does. It's it's super cool that they decided to add big air for skiing because they actually had big air for snowboarding in the last Olympics. So it was cool that they added us on. And obviously, it's it's always special when an, something you're passionate about, you know, gets kind of elected to be in the Olympics, like surfing and skateboarding did for the Summer Olympics. Um, it just kind of shows that people really recognize it as a. It's a although it's a more, in my opinion, kind of a not necessarily a sport, but an art form more. It's cool to see that people recognize it as a sport. And obviously we're all really serious athletes and we, we take ourselves pretty serious and we have a ton of fun along the way, but I think sometimes extreme sports or action sports can kind of get put in this general box where people think we just kind of are doing it for whatever and kind of see what happens. But I think a lot of, a lot of athletes in our sport, take it really really serious and it's cool to see that it get that recognition and we put our you know our, our lives into the into what we do and i think maybe the images of us having so much fun and it being kind of such a personal expression type of thing makes people think it's maybe less than it is but i think to a lot of us it's it's yeah it's it's really serious and it's what we've been doing our whole lives so it's cool to to see it get in there and it, it obviously pushes the progression of the sport to crazy new levels. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of years with both slope style and big air, but maybe even more so big air because it's going to be in the Olympics. I think there's more, there's more support for national teams in terms of government funding and there's more training camps and there's a lot of really good younger kids coming up. So there's just a lot of different factors playing into even more, of a kind of sped up progression that we've seen in the past, I think. It's really cool to hear you talk about it as a sport, but also as like a form of personal expression. And I'm curious, what are you trying to express like when you're doing your tricks? Yeah. So for me personally, I've always, um, I've always kind of prided myself in my skiing and having really unique and kind of creative approaches to 
whether it's a jump or whether it's in slope style, a way to look at the course or, or a way to hit a specific um, rail or feature in the course. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I mean anything specifically by it, but just I know that what brings me the most joy in skiing is finding new and creative ways to do certain tricks or hit a certain feature um, and kind of think outside the box compared to everyone else. And uh, I don't know. I think that just gives me joy in knowing that it is a sport where we can do exactly what we want to do and we don't have to follow really any rules, which is really, really unique about it. And I think that's what draws a lot of us to freestyle skiing, a lot of us professional athletes who are free skiers. That's kind of what we love about it. What would you want to share with maybe someone who's younger or like interested in doing big air or more generally any type of free skiing? What would you tell them if they were like wanted to do this type of sport? Yeah, I think the main thing I would say is that you don't really necessarily need to, you know, look at the greatest and the best and think that, you know, you need to match them or you need to be better than them or that's like where you need to be one day. I think, and I never really thought like that. I mean, obviously I looked up to, I had a ton of idols that I looked up to and that's at one point I thought, yeah, I'd love to be where they're at now and, and, you know, be doing, be pushing myself to my limits. But I think for me, a lot of my life growing up, I just went out and I didn't really think about it too much. I just, as long as you're having fun doing it and, um, you enjoy it. I think that's the, that's the main reason to do really any sport. And that's the same for freestyle skiing. So for me, it was going out with my friends and just having a good time. And for anyone who's trying to get into freestyle skiing or maybe already into freestyle skiing, I think having a a great group of people that you do it with, and although it's an individual sport, I think it's also a team sport in many ways because you, the people you surround yourself with kind of really inspire your tricks and inspire you to push yourself. So um, I think, yeah, just skiing with a, a good group of people and just making sure it's always fun. There's not really any point in, in doing, I think, especially sport, an action sport or a sport like freestyle skiing, there's not really a point in doing it if you're not really enjoying yourself. So just um, doing it for yourself and doing it for the right reasons and not really try to think about maybe the fame or the glory or the money that could come with it, which in our sport is a lot less than other sports. So I think a lot of people don't really think about that. but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just having a good time. And for me personally, I mean, I, I never really go skiing alone ever. I always love to go with friends and I, I, I can't remember a day I've skied alone. So I think just having a good group of people to do, do it with is what makes it probably the most fun. Well, Alex, thanks so much for, for talking to me and congratulations again. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure just for, I think people who maybe don't know too much about freestyle skiing. Cause I know it can seem like, uh, a blur and a blend to maybe someone who doesn't know what's going on. So I think it's always cool to try and help out and explain what we do and kind of why we do it. So no, thank you. Alex Hall from Park City, Utah. He spoke with CPR's Matt Bloom about free ski big air. It's one of seven new sports at the Winter Olympics in February. Hall is positioned to make the U.S. team. Other Olympic qualifiers for the Winter Games take place in Colorado this month. They're open to the public. Check out CPR.org for information. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.